To kind of launch our Ask Anything time, we're going to open the scriptures, and we're going to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 3, and uh, Mr. Logger is going to come and going to read that for us. If you uh, are able to, please stand uh, and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. might take you a second, if you're, especially if your bookmark is in Acts, so we'll give you a minute to turn there, Acts, or, or, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 3, that's page 961 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Let's see. For I delivered, just joking. There we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Thanks, Steve. Well, this is going to be fun. Um, I'm joined here by uh, Mr. Josh Watt and uh, Seth Trout. Josh. Leads our student ministry, and uh, which is pretty cool. Got a few Josh Watt fans around here, and uh, student ministry fans too. And so you guys, a few weeks ago, did a uh, student takeover thing where the students did music, and they did the teaching, and they did, you know, they led all the small groups, they ran everything. So do we need you still, I guess is the first yeah. question? Or did they just, they, they took it? They took over. My wife said, uh, no one really noticed that you were gone, so... <laughs> Or Reese, and one lady said, don't take offense, but I've never seen the kids so engaged during the teaching, so (laughs) no offense taken. So we're very uh, not needed in the ministry. Well, it sounds like you've raised up a good good team. So, and then Seth Trout leads our adult ministry team, and he's an associate pastor over that, and a lot of the classes and things you're seeing are stuff that Seth's been working on, and you hear him preach from time to time. And Seth just recently, got his uh, MDiv, his Master's of Divinity, from Phoenix Seminary. So he's a recent graduate there, yeah. So you, you did the oral exams a few months ago. Were there any questions that you were just thinking like, gosh, this is such a stupid question. I, why would anyone ask this question? Uh, none of them were totally stupid, but a lot of them had nothing to do with real life. So, <laughs> uh, so I guess... A lot of them are like, it just feels like people with PhDs arguing with people who have PhDs as opposed to people who actually want to help people. So that was kind of annoying that I had to deal with that, but <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> I'm done now, so I think it was great. So yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this will be a little more real life today. Um, before we start answering questions, I want to I wanna give kind of three exhortations and then ask a request of you, okay? So the first exhortation is to remember that 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, tells us that there are some things that are of first importance, and that's the gospel. So if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, verse three, uh, the apostle Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's pretty interesting, actually, to say all of scripture is equally inspired by God, but not all of scripture is equally important. Isn't that interesting? Paul himself says, here's what's most important. 
The most important thing, the thing of first importance is this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised. And so let's keep that in mind as we talk about things today. There'll be a lot of different issues about a lot of different stuff. And the, the closer it is to the heart of the gospel, the more important it is. And the further away it is from the heart of the gospel, it, it still could be important and it could still be relevant. And obviously if you're asking it, you want a good answer. Um, but we also go, the further away we get from the gospel, the more we go, hey, this is a little more open-handed, and, uh, and, and so keep that in mind. Second thing to keep in mind is that we grow through tension. That's true in every relationship. It's true in working out. It's true in your career. You, you grow through tension. You grow through things that are difficult. You grow through things that aren't exactly clear, and you have to find a way. And uh, this is going to be, there's going to be some tension today. There will be some questions that might make you uncomfortable. We're not filtering the questions in terms of, um, there, there might be things here, particularly if you have young kids, we don't know exactly what's going to be asked. Um, there is someone responsible for putting it on the screen. Um, but if there's questions that are more, uh, you know, adult in nature, we're not afraid to answer those. Um, and so that might make tension happen at different points. There also may just be tension of, you didn't really like the question or you didn't like how it was answered and you, you, it makes you uncomfortable. Embrace that. That's part of how we grow. Uh, third thing is uh, consider this the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Um, we have a very limited amount of time to try to answer questions that many of them would deserve a whole sermon or a whole series. And, um, and if so, if, if, it, if something's said in a way that rubs you wrong, we'll all be available after the service. Um, we all have our email addresses online. We don't want to hide from anybody. So if you have questions, if you want to begin a conversation based on something that's said, we would really welcome that. So, so those are my exhortations. And then here's the request is please just give us grace. <laughs> this is, uh, we don't know the questions are coming. Um, and that's part of the fun of it and the challenge of it. And um, give us grace. We're going to try to do our best answering as many questions as we can on the fly. And so... Uh, Ready? Ready. Here we go. All right, first question. Come on. How do we know God really exists? Was he created so long ago as a way to control people and make people do what others wanted, or does he exist based on faith alone? So I, I'm going to take that second question, meaning is the concept of God kind of invented by people to control them and make, that's how I'm interpreting that. So how do we know God really exists? Was he invented by people to control others and make them do what they want, or does he exist based on faith alone? That sounds like the kind of question sounds that like would be on your question. exam. So, <laughs> so, I know a guy. What, what say you, Mr. Trout? Uh, so part of it is the Bible was written to people who were um, pretty much already believed in gods. So it's written in a really polytheistic environment. Everyone kind of was super spiritual. And really, the Bible doesn't give uh, a reasoned defense for God's existence. Um, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God, it just kind of assumes his existence and goes from there. Um, there's a lot of different ways that the Bible talks about uh, evidence for God, primarily looking at creation. Romans 1 talks about um, his invisible attributes were made known to us through his creation. So that's uh, so the argument from creation is probably the primary argument that the Bible gives us, is that you can look at creation and see that God exists. Many, many um, people in the history of the church have written all types of different arguments um, for the existence of God. Uh, but I think that 
for personally for me, the primary argument for God's existence is the empty tomb of Jesus, mm-hmm. is the fact that um, people are asking, is Jesus really God? Is he not God? Um, is he a good teacher? Is what's going on? And I think that that's what the epistles, um, Paul, Paul, even in the passage that we just read, point us to for evidence that God is alive and active and at work in the world is look at the empty tomb of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, the second question, did people create God as a concept up to make to control people. I think that unfortunately the church has used God in that way in the, in the past to control people and to get them to do what they want. And I think that that's something the church needs to continually repent of. We never want to be a place that controls people. We want to be a place that points people to Jesus and points people to God. And so does he exist based on faith alone? Um, he doesn't exist based on my faith. He exists and I believe in him because by faith I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the, there's lots of books on that. So if you, <laughs> yeah, if you want to read a book, book of that, read Evans, Physics of God, and you can read the rest of your life and then still have questions. So <laughs> it's a good question, though. That's great. Cool. All right, next question. How is Gateway engaging various ethnic communities and cultures and confronting racism in the East Valley? Man, I love that question. I love that that's being asked. Um, I will say that, that being part of Redemption Church as a whole is making us as leaders uh, think about and ask and engage that question in a way that I don't think we would be otherwise. And that's because among our 10 congregations, there's significant uh, ethnic diversity. Um, a number of our uh, congregations are led by uh, multiracial folks and um, people from a variety of backgrounds and it's it's just necessarily making me ask questions that I never even knew were questions and so I really appreciate how how redemption is helping form and shape all of us in that Um, there's so much ethnic and racial tension right now in our country and it's clearly not new but it is heightened and um, there will undoubtedly be more incidents that make it kind of back on the forefront and when you're in a uh, when you're in a majority culture like I am as a white male I can sort of check in and out of the issues because I kind of have that ability I don't have to think about it all the time because I kind of have the privilege of not being not being on my mind and so when it happens it's on my mind when it doesn't I can kind of drift out of whereas if you're a person of color you don't really have the opportunity to not think about this because it's in your face and in your experience all the time and it isn't just you playing the race card it's living in a in a culture as a as a sub-dominant culture where the majority of people are different than you um and so um what we're trying to do to engage that is a lot through building relationships um, building relationships through leadership and people among our different congregations that are helping us uh, think through these issues uh, we had a woman named latasha morrison a few months ago that came and did a bridge building thing for a number of people uh, in our congregations who wanted to be part of that um, i think we have so 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 far to go and there's way more questions and answers about it um, it comes up, it's interesting, it's come up a lot as we've been preaching through Acts, these issues of racial uh, justice and tension as the Jews and Gentiles are trying to get along. Um, so I think we're trying to engage, uh, engage in that way, but we've got a long way to go. So you guys have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer that's full of just depth is relationships, just 
having relationships with people who are different and see the world differently and have different experiences. It's interesting. My kids look like me. They're just little white guys who have a mom and dad at their house. And their two, my oldest went to kindergarten. His two first friends, uh, one father was in prison for until his 18th birthday, and the other father was killed in a, a stabbing of these two African-American kids. And those were his first friends. Like, Elijah just has a different worldview than those kids. So I can impose my answers and how I think they should view the world based off my perspective, or I can start a relationship with them and try to listen and hear what their story's like. And that goes across the board with different just uh, ages, all sorts. Well, whoever's different than you, are you listening? Are you trying to build a relationship? I feel like redemption pastors are trying to do that and model that as the primary way to yeah. kind of get at this. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next question. I was told growing up that all sins are equal. If that's true, why does the church allow people to serve and lead who struggle with sins every day, but not the LGBTQ community? That's a really good question. question. Take that. (laughs) Uh, I want to answer the first part without answering the second part yet. try and I'll give that a shot. The first part, all sins being equal, I think it's important that we recognize um, kind of a distinction here is that uh, all sins are equally damnable, meaning that every sin that we commit, um, God hates and he doesn't, it doesn't please him. And so um, every single sin is equally frowned upon by God the Father, but not all sin is equally damaging. Um, So it's all equally damnable, but it's not all equally damaging. So like me having um, lustful thoughts and entertaining those is, is damnable, but me acting on them damages my wife more. And so I think that distinction is important. So, um, but that doesn't really impact what I'm going to study the next, the answer the next one. Um, uh, so if that's true, so they're all equally damnable, but not all equally damaging, does the church allow people to serve and lead who struggle with sins every day, but not the LGBTQ community? Uh, so my friends who are Christians and who really struggle with a variety of different things through, uh, in that acronym, um, I have a couple friends who struggle with a lot of same-sex attraction and are following Jesus, and the church absolutely lets them serve. Um, I think that kind of accountability for them is the same as it'd be accountability for us. So I think that uh, assuming that people all struggle with sin and are all trying to follow after Jesus by walking in faith and repentance and putting off the old and putting on the new, uh, I've at least in my context, I haven't seen anybody be excluded from serving because of the LGBTQ nature of their struggles and temptations. Um, I see people all over the map not allowed to serve for time periods because they don't want to uh, follow after Jesus in faith and repentance. So if that's the impression, unfortunately that is the impression the church has given off, is there's these people who sin like this and people who sin like that, and these type of sinners are welcome and these sinners are not welcome. And that's evil, and I hate that that's the message that the church has accidentally set. Uh, and if you're in this congregation and you feel like that's the message you're receiving, uh, we're sorry that you're receiving that message. Uh, if you struggle with different LGBTQ-type questions or uh, issues, uh, apart from what we expect everybody to do is to repent and believe and follow after Jesus, I hope you never feel like there's an additional weight of proof that you have to provide. Uh, so the hope is that the church shouldn't allow people to serve and lead 
at different levels based on, like, everybody's tempted, we're all tempted differently. There's not shame in different types of temptations, but every temptation, uh, like Jesus was tempted, so being tempted can't be a sin. Uh, I'll stop rambling now. That's yeah, I, th- I think what I would just add there is Seth's language is very specific. So he talked about friends who are experiencing same-sex attraction. That's a temptation or a feeling or these things you're experiencing. That's very different than taking on an identity that says, I am lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, etc. So a lot of what's kind of loaded in that question of LGBTQ community is people who are defining themselves on the basis of things that God would say are sins. And so anyone that is, that is not willing to uh, repent and say, this is a temptation, this is a struggle, this is a sin, I'm fighting it. If, if you're willing to say that, you can serve and lead all day long. That's everybody who's in serving or leadership. But if you're saying, I'm unwilling to repent in this area, I'm unwilling to try to see things the way God sees them in his word, um, I'm just going to do what I want to do, regardless of what God says. That's the point where leadership and serving becomes a problem. Yeah, I think the key word there is struggle. I hear people talk about the times like, oh, I struggle with greed. You're not struggling, you're just greedy. You know, like, you're not really fighting the fight there. You're just kind of saying, it's who I am, I'm a greedy person. So I think if people are willing to struggle against their sin, then like at different levels of where they're at in their maturity with Christ. And so there should not be two different hierarchies, but yeah, there'll be, are you willing to struggle or are you just kind of saying, eh, I, I am who I am, I do not change. And so I think that's just that. Yeah. Can I add one thing? Just sure. So the, the folks should be struggling, but people who don't struggle in this area, I'd say have a, like a real, uh, try to get in their shoes. Mm. So essentially the way it'd be experienced uh, for them would be, it'd be like someone telling me, you have to leave your wife because that relationship is not correct. I'm not saying, that's how it's experienced. All I know is loving this person. Hmm. Hey, if you want to be a part of this church, you have to leave Aubrey because that lifestyle is wrong. Now, doctrinally, we know what the Bible says, but I'm just saying experientially and walk, Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Try to get in your neighbor's shoes a lot, and it just creates a more gracious ground to walk on as you're interacting with people. Rather than having academic darts you can shoot at people, try to experience and feel what it would feel like mm-hmm. for them to hear repentance, turn away from the yeah. only thing you know, perhaps. Yeah, that's good. All right, next question. Why should my teen attend student ministry? Josh, gonna, you got this one? I'm gonna answer this one. This one. <laughs> I'm gonna answer this one, because I have a daughter that's about to go into student ministry, and I cannot wait. I'm so excited for her. Um, so I'll, I'll answer this, and you can add to it. Um, the number one reason why your teen should attend student ministry is because they will meet a number of uh, Christ-pursuing adults who will love them and know them and point them to Jesus. That's the reason. Um, you're doing your best to try to impart things to them about faith and about God and about what's important. And uh, you may or may not have that through your educational environment, but you will for sure have that in student ministry. That's absolutely the number one reason. You need uh, your kid hearing from other adults about who Christ is 
Um, and not just a talking head adult, but an adult that has entered into their world, gotten to know them, built relationship, loved them in very tangible ways. That's, I, there's probably other reasons, but to me, that's why I'm so excited for my kids to be able to be part of it. So that's great. Did you add anything? If all your kids end up being in student ministry at the same time, you get a free date night built into your week. <laughs> so, yeah. Just, it's a relational, I call it a relational web. But back in the early Apple days, all the people who were part of the Apple computer construction signed and kind of put it on the inside or whatever the inside of the computer is called, I don't know, saying, our signature is on this thing. We just want to be a small signature. You're the biggest si signature parents. Grandparents are a huge signature, but you need more than those signatures in the life of a young person. So we just want to be a signature, play our role, help them be known, loved, and then centered on Jesus in a very funky stage of life. So that, that's what we want to do. That's great. All right, next question. In, first, or in John 14, 6, Jesus states, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can we, in compassion, confront other faiths of the world, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, etc., that make a contrary claim? It's interesting, just even the wording, and I'll let you guys jump in on this, of in compassion confront. Those feel like, just on the surface, it feels like, you know, you, can you do that? And yet I think uh, Jesus clearly did that. He was full of truth and grace. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great question. When do you guys want to take it? Um, sure, I'll try. So my Muslim friends like talking about Jesus and religion. So this question is kind of asked from the perspective of an Americanized way of viewing the world where religion is this private thing that you don't really bring up. When you encounter people from other cultures and uh, Islamic folks and a lot of them want to talk about God because that's Allah is the most important thing in their life. So it's not, don't view it through a lens of this is going to be kind of an apologetic debate necessarily. It could be. It's just a matter of getting to know whoever this person is. And yeah. all of my uh, Muslim friends that I've talked to love talking to me and they know I'm the Jesus guy and they know we're on different pages. And yet every time I go to their house or hang out, they want to talk about it. So it's, it's not always going to be a fight necessarily. It's you're battling spiritual principalities that are blinding folks that's that's a real battle going on but the the inner uh dialogue is sweet for me with a lot of these folks so it, it's not always a confrontation so yeah one of the things i do is kind of up the front i just kind of level the playing field like with some of my atheist friends kind of like hey you want me to be an atheist i get that i want you to be a christian so let's just not be offended when we try and win each other over and so you just kind of like let's just be honest like we disagree and we can talk about it and then you love them over time and uh the spirit provides opportunities, and I think a lot of times we don't, we don't need to kick down doors that are closed, but pray for the spirit to provide opportunities, and he will. And, and the place Seth started, where he talked about the resurrection of Jesus, that's the key question. That's the bigger question than what does the Bible say about homosexuality, or what does the Bible say about uh, other faiths, or the, the key question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And if Jesus rose from the dead, then that is kind of the most important thing. And so that might be something just as you build relationships to uh, not get sort of lost in the Bible translations and these sort of other questions as much as focusing on what, what do you think about Jesus? Did he rise from the dead? All right, next question. What about women teaching and or leading RC groups? Is it allowed? And if not, why? 
So Seth, uh, RC's kind of is under that adult ministry banner. Why don't you take that question? Yeah, so this uh, question similar to this um, came up at our last service, and it was, what, what about the role of women in ministry? And Luke gave a longer answer to that. But we, we believe that the, uh, the only role that is re- reserved for men in leadership is the role of elder slash pastor. And so I think it's as we put forward and believe that uh, that's all that the Bible reserves for men, we should be careful to not reserve anything extra for men because that's already... Um, I just I, th- I think that it's important that we only go as far as the Bible does as far as limiting anybody's role in any direction. And so a lot of things that John's been working towards, John's our RC pastor, has been working towards our RCs having group leadership anyway, and I think that women being part of those and teaching and facilitating. There's not a ton of teaching that goes on in RCs. Uh, there might be some, but a lot of it's more facilitating. And so uh, as women are part of those group leadership um, team leadership things. I think that's super great. Great. Next question. What does redemption believe regarding election and why? Uh, like 2016? <laughs> or, um, I assume that that uh, question is related to doctrines of election and predestination and things like that. So that's a great question um, that... I guess I'd refer you to Romans chapter 9, the messages I did on that, which I did two of them a few years ago that were each about 50 minutes long. So um, in less time than that, um, what redemption believes regarding election and why. I think the best place to go would actually be to Ephesians 1. And so if you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians 1, the first half of it is just this one huge run-on sentence that the Apostle Paul writes because he's so excited about what God has done in the gospel. And included in that section is Paul celebrating some things that God has done even before uh, time. And so here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Uh, He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I emphasize chose because that's that kind of word election. It's talking about God choosing. So Paul says, blessed be God because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He goes on to talk about how we have redemption, we have forgiveness, uh, the spirit has been given to us, all these amazing things that he talks about here. Uh, By the way, this is a great place for me to remind you what I said earlier of let this begin the conversation, not end it. Um, Because a lot of us uh, have come from backgrounds where... where, uh, what Paul seems to be talking about, about election, isn't how we thought of it. Because what he says there, if you look at it in verse 4, is that God chose us, those who are followers of Jesus, before the foundation of the world. God saves sinners. God chose us. Uh, then if you go, well, oh, really? It, in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So he predestined before time, he, he chose us. He set his love upon us. And so uh, that's 
kind of a summary, I guess, of, of how I'd answer this question. What does redemption believe regarding election and why? We believe that God saves sinners, that before the foundation of the world, before time began, God set his love on a multitude of sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation who would repent and give their lives to him in faith. Um, so that's what we believe about that. Do we, <laughs> there's a lot more we could say. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, the word. Yeah, he said what the Bible says and what we believe. The word is loaded um, with depending on your background and denomination. So, like he said, let this begin the conversation, especially if you're wrestling through this, and this kind of rings in your head uh, in a, in a way that's not joyful or it kind of bangs around in your head more clunkily and you you just wrestle against it just talk to people and uh it's it's a big truth it's not something you just uh, it's a huge truth let me say one more thing on this because you can't deny that it says there god chose us god predestined us so the question is why why did he choose some people was it and, and and sort of the two options tend to be Option one is, well, God looked down the quarters of time and knew who would choose him, and so he chose them first. That's how a lot of, that's probably the way I thought about it or heard about it, uh, if it ever came up growing up. But this passage actually says um, in verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So in other words, why did God do that? because he wanted to not because of anything good he saw in us and in fact when you get to chapter 2 of Ephesians what you see is that uh, human beings are dead in our trespasses and sins we have no ability to choose God because we're spiritually dead and so the most helpful illustration that I'll use and you'll hear this uh, at a number of points around here is the illustration of the vulture some of you have heard this some of you haven't I'm getting a lot of blank stares here here's the idea I've heard um, it. you've heard it if, if right up here, uh, imagine in the back of the room there was a really hungry vulture. And up at the front of the room, there were two bowls. One was a bowl filled with really juicy, raw ground beef. And the other was a bowl of the most delicious salad you could ever make. And we let the vulture loose. Which bowl is he going for? Like... We're pretty unanimous, he'd go for the meat, right? Okay, he'd go for the meat. Well, what if we got a different vulture in? We said, well, that vulture was maybe an anomaly. Let's get a new vulture in. What would he pick? The meat. If we got 100 vultures, how many would pick the meat? All of them. Why? Because by nature, vultures love meat. And what, what Ephesians 2 is saying when it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We're, we're dead in our sins. It's saying by nature we don't choose God. We are always going to choose ourselves. We're going to choose our selfishness. We're going to choose our sin. What, what the vulture needs to eat the salad is for God to reach in its, and, and swap out its little vulture heart for a new heart. God needs to reach in and, and give the vulture new life where he wants the salad instead of, instead of the meat. And, and that's really what God has to do for us is that we, because of our sin, we don't choose God. God, in his grace and mercy, has to reach in our hearts and give us new life and new faith. And so 
Um, that's what we believe, uh, largely based on what we see the scripture teach. But we also realize that's a, that raises tons and tons of more questions that you're probably typing right now. So uh, anyway, let's do the next question. In the Bible, we read that Jesus will tell some people who thought they were Christians to depart from him because he never knew them. How do I make sure he knows me and doesn't send me away? Boy, that's a great question. Let me just read that passage uh, just so that we're all on the same page with it. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. This is toward the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can take that unless one of you guys want to. Go for it. Go for it. Um, yeah, so the, it's, a, it's a great question. And um, particularly, I sense that just ache in that question. Um, where it's not just this theoretical thing, but this is a personal thing. I don't want to be sent away by Jesus. I don't want to have given my whole life to thinking I knew Christ and then stand before him and have him go, sorry, I never knew you. And so it can kind of feel like, is, is this arbitrary? Is this just Jesus kind of playing like duck, duck, damned? Duck, 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 damn. Oh, sorry, you, you, you're out. I never knew you. Um, the key part of this, of this passage is where he says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And then he says, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'll know if you're really mine, but not by what you say about what you believe, but by how you do the things that I'm calling you to do. Which doesn't mean that the things we do earn us eternal life, but it means if we have eternal life, we're not going to be described like the main characteristic of us is we're a worker of lawlessness who says one thing and does the other. Of course we're going to fail, of course we're going to struggle, but what Jesus is really calling us to there is to have a, a life that's in line with our talk. So, All right, next one. Are there any resources at Redemption Gateway for those in grief? Great question. Yeah, so we have a, a, so part of it is all of our pastors want to make themselves available for all types of relationships. We never want to be the type of church where pastors are inaccessible and there's kind of like this uh, super long line that you can never get into. So we never want to just outsource that. Um, So all of us are here if you're in grief. But more specifically than that, we have a really great counseling ministry of men and women who have been trained by our counseling and care pastor, Dale um, Thakra. In addition to that, there's a whole um, care team that he's been building and developing of people who um, can come around those who are like in uh, more acute seasons of grief. Uh, and so uh, Dale does a great job with that and uh, he's trained a good team with that. And so um, if you or people you know are either in acute grief, like something serious is happening right now, or just in the general state of uh, your life is really hard, we have um, both our pastors on staff, our counseling pastor, who's better that at better that type of stuff than we are, um, but then also the team that he's developed, who are love to um, help walk with you through those type of things. And uh, um, you can find out about that online through Dale's email address. There's also some information in the program about how to get connected to some of those uh, grief resources. 
All right, next question. After reading Romans 7, 21 to 25, in light of this, when we claim Christ and continue to repeat our sins, how do we know that Christ has done the work of salvation in us, and how do we not continue the cycle of sin? Wow, that's a great question. It's a really good question. Uh, so we should probably read that passage so that everybody else is in on the conversation. Romans chapter 7, 21 to 25. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Either of you want to take that? I'll start it, I guess. I don't know if I'll answer it. Um, it's kind of tied to the last question about the John passage. I would just say for you, do you have an understanding of kind of your sensitivity to um, feeling like God's really got a hold of you? I feel like there's a spectrum of people and there's a, there's a sensitive side who doubts their salvation Am I really saved? If I was really saved, I wouldn't. They just are more sensitive to that sort of thinking. I would just say, if you're in that camp, hopefully you are aware, self-aware of it, and the council and the people you go to are aware of that, because there's certain types of teachers and kind of dogmatic, real, um, just truth-focused stuff that's not wrong, but just isn't as nuanced as you need to be with certain types of people. So this gets to that if. We all struggle with sin, so I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum where I kind of just, of course I'm saved, I, I compartmentalize everything. My wife's really sensitive and thinks through stuff, so sh she needs to be surrounded by people who are going to encourage her and not downplay sin, but just shepherd her well and pastor her well and, and, and give her the grace of Jesus in tangible ways. So I, I, I don't know if that answers it, but just I've heard it twice now, so there's, there's a good chunk of you who are very sensitive to your salvation and your standing before God for a lot of different reasons. Your makeup, your past denominational way of talking about things, your, your parents upbringing with you. Just be aware of it and start to kind of go to counsel that is aware of that also so they can walk you through this so you're not perpetually doubting your salvation because you've fallen into sin, which we all do. There's a I'm the type of person who needs to hear that and hear the John passage because I just assume I'm good. There's just know yourself, and, and I've heard it twice now, so you more sensitive souls to this, be aware of that and, and have people around you that are aware of that. So I don't know if that's helpful. That, that is helpful. That question in the middle, how do we know that Christ has done the work of salvation in us? First uh, John is a great book to read if you're asking that question because he actually says, I'm writing this whole book so that you'll know you have eternal life. So 1 John is a great place to go with it. And what you sort of see in that book is that there's kind of three main ways to kind of figure out, am I a Christian? One is, um, do I objectively believe the truth of the gospel? If so, that means I might be a Christian. Uh, second is, um, do I see ongoing change and growth and development in my life and um and other people sort of you know see that so there's a kind of 
there's some evidence of I'm, I'm growing and changing in my life. And the third is just kind of a subjective sense of I love God. I know God. I, I want what God wants. It's interesting in Romans 6, just before uh, this passage that was referenced here, the Apostle Paul writes, but thanks be to God, verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, which, which is saying, yes, you're gonna still struggle with sin, but you're gonna want to obey, right? This is a big thing I think about in my life, in my kid's life, and those around me, is where's my want-o-meter? Am I, do, I, do I want to obey, and I'm just really, I really am fighting it and struggling, or have I kind of gone, eh, whatever, I just... I don't, I don't want to. If that's where you are, you should probably doubt whether you have salvation. But if you have a sense that I really do want to grow, I really do want to change, I'm fighting this, um, I love the Lord, he is precious to me, um, then be encouraged. Uh, continue to wrestle with and fight your sin and uh, hope to experience more victory there. But be encouraged even just that you want the Lord and that you know him and, and uh, want to love him. Next question. If Satan punishes the bad, does that make him somewhat good? So I, I'm taking that to say like, this is maybe the common view that Satan's the one sort of overseeing heaven, or I'm sorry, overseeing hell. <laughs> uh, why don't you take that? Yes, that's a really good question. And I think like even in like, if you watch Chronicles of Narnia, that's kind of like the subtle view that gets out there is, that these sinners belong to the Satan person and Satan's there punishing them. Uh, but actually, Satan is one of the people being punished in hell. Um, in that hell, God is present pouring out his wrath and Satan is one of the recipients. He's in the lake of fire chained up. And so uh, Satan doesn't actually punish the bad. He's just one of them thrown up in the lake of fire in the end. And uh, so that's kind of interesting. So people talk about hell as separation from God but hell is separation from God's blessed goodness. Hmm. It's not separation from God. Um, God is there pouring out his wrath, which is really intense, but that is what it is, so. Right. Next question. What does the Bible say about marriage after divorce? Hmm. That's a good question and an important question. Um, the... Uh, Well, the Bible says a few different things. You look like you're looking one of them up. Um, th this is a really hard question to answer in an environment like this because what we would tell people, even if you look through our membership packet, we would say um, we handle these on a kind of case-by-case -case basis. Everybody is kind of, uh, everyone's story is a little bit different. Um, and, um, and so, I don't know, I hesitate even to, I'm not trying to dodge it, it's just I feel like maybe I'd be more misleading. So if one of you are more skilled at, at doing that than me, Seth. please try. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to read. This is Matthew 5, 31, and this is one of the places where Jesus talks about divorce um, and marriage after divorce. Um, it, so this is Matthew 5, 31 through 32, and this is a pretty hard passage to interpret and an even harder passage to apply, especially when you think about the type of divorce. So it was said also... It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So 
one thing there that Jesus says is he says, you have heard, but I say. So Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce were radically countercultural in the first century, and so we should expect them to be radically countercultural now. Uh, a lot of, when we talk about marriage and divorce, the type and the conditions of the divorce are a really big deal, and in a way that uh, I'm not, don't really wanna just go into it in details, but I think, uh, so we should expect Jesus' teachings, they are countercultural. I think the conditions of the divorce are a big deal, and I think that I've yet to see two situations that are the exact same. Mm -hmm. So every single time we've had counseling and talked through it in different environments, had multiple pastors kind of praying and discerning, and so um, I think if you're married now, you should stay married, and regardless of how you got married, uh, but I think it's difficult. But I would start with what Jesus teaches, and uh, it's especially, like, I know, I know people right now who are dating, and they're both divorced, and they're praying through how to apply this passage to their future marriage, and it's a lot. It's really hard. It's really mm -hmm. weighty. It's not an easy decision, um, and, you know, James 1.5 says, if we lack wisdom, we could pray and God gives it to us. And he won't give us any wisdom that's outside of the bounds of the word of God, but he will teach us to apply and how to reason with, with wisdom, apply the word of God. So if, if that's a situation that you're close to or that you're wrestling with right now, I hope we recognize that it's not an easy thing to really apply that passage. However, it is God's word and it is countercultural. So, Let's do two more, two more questions. So next one. For someone who doesn't believe in the Bible, how do we prove that Jesus really was who he said he was and that he really rose from the dead? That's a great question, especially in light of some of the stuff we've been saying up here. So um, how would you? So proof is a really hard word. I think um, even the idea of needing proof is a really cultural question. So in our, in our current Western post-enlightenment context, we live in a lens that the way that we discern truth is through the scientific method. And so how can I have enough justified true belief in order to have proof um, that something is real or not? Whereas I think what the Bible is written to is not a people in a scientific context, but, a sci but in a very spiritual context. So I think that one, I think the idea of I need a certain level of proof I think one question is, what proof do you have that you need proof? Um, and that's kind of a difficult um, question to wrestle with because I think we all assume that we need proof because we're raised in the scientific community, but I think that that is a product of culture in and of itself. Um, but secondly, on those grounds, I think Ephesians 1 talks about that, that we have had the eyes of our hearts opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I think really the only proof is that the Spirit teaches your heart in a miraculous way that Christ is risen. And we see that in a variety of different places that um, the eyes of our hearts need to be opened by God. That First Peter says, he caused us to be born again. That it's not, um, people aren't, don't come to believe in the resurrection because they're given proof, but they're come to believe in resurrection because the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. And so if you're in that position and you're going, I don't really know if I believe all this, this is kind of a lot, it kind of sounds like nonsense, I think that's absolutely natural to feel that way. It does feel like a lot of nonsense. And I think if you want to believe, I would ask you to um, continue coming to church, pray that God helps you believe. Uh, but in terms of proof, the empty grave is proof in one sense, but really it's the spirit um, breaking down our hostility to the authority of God that I think leads us to believe in the resurrection. At least that's my story. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the only thing I'd add is, because if, if you're saying, well, the proof is the empty grave, well, what's the proof of that? I think the best evidence of that is the existence of the church. Because um, 
why would people, what, I mean, you, you had all these followers of Jesus who were running scared to death, who became bold, and many of whom died themselves for their belief in Jesus raising from the dead. And, and a lot of people die for lies. You don't die for things you know are lies. And so the very existence of the church to me points to at least some sense of that this was really true. Yeah, I think even especially Peter's transformation, you see him in like the Bible being really honest. Peter denies Jesus three times to little girls and then three pages later he's telling 3,000 men, you killed Jesus, repent. And so it's kind of like his boldness shift is pretty dramatic yeah. and I think some of those. What, when if someone said, well, but, but you can't use the Bible, you just have to use history. I'd say, well, then you don't understand the Bible because it is history and there's a lot of good reasons to trust the Bible and that would kind of raise other questions too. Were you going to add something? Yeah, First Peter 3.15 says, sanctify the Lord, make the Lord number one in your heart and be ready to give it a defense for the hope that is in you. Um, so what does hope tangibly look like in your life as people experience you? That's kind of at the heart of our missional uh, engagement with friends and family who don't know Jesus is do we actually have a bedrock hope at foundation the answer is yes the resurrection but what is it experientially looking like in your life as people come to you and say why do you have this unique perspective or hope or whatever words they use hmm. uh, that's kind of then that's Peter who wrote that so hmm. what's your hope look like to people who have no hope out there hmm. that's a question Good. all right last question how would you respond to someone who thinks they just need more willpower to overcome their sin? Um, man, that's a great question. Uh, wow. Um, the main thing I would say is that... Um, There's a great SNL skit for this. Bob Newhart. Yeah, go ahead. So YouTube, Bob Newhart on the SNL skit, and he's a counselor, therapist or something, and someone comes in who just struggles with something, and Newhart just keeps yelling at him, Stop it! I just keep, well, stop it. And I feel like that's what a lot of people want is just somebody yelling at them, telling them to stop it. Well, if that was the case, we'd all be a lot better because we can all do that. But it's way more radical. It's a heart transformation. There's stop it just doesn't always work. You need a new heart given to you by Jesus in the spirit. Um, so I don't know if that helps. I can't add, I can't improve on that. So yeah. that's great. I mean, that's how I parent stop it. And then I realize I, my kids need a new heart, but <laughs> I keep yelling at them to stop it. We all need a new heart. That's the, that's the gist. That's why we're here. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this time. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, it's, uh, it's amazing how much you say in your word and yet um, how much uh, is still because of our sin and our limitedness uh, just difficult to understand and even more so difficult to apply or embrace. And so God, I pray that you would by your spirit minister to each person here, that you would give them grace and point them by your spirit to the truth. Uh, Lord, we thank you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's uh, stand and I'll send us off with a benediction. Uh, the three of us will be in the front left of the room if you wanna come up and ask questions or talk. Uh, if you're new, we'd love to meet you especially. And we'll have folks from our prayer team that'll be in the front right of the room and they'd love to pray for you as well. So let me send us off with this benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Have a great week. Love you guys. See ya.